Welcome to the JMAC Tries Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show dedicated to bringing you weekly conversations of motivation and positivity with badass triathletes. Yes, I'm your host, Jason, aka J-Mac, and this is the J-Mac Tries Podcast. Another great episode on tap for you today. Been mixing it up with a mix of pros and age groupers, and today we're going back to the pro side. And it's an honor to have the opportunity to speak with Cody Beals. Yes, recent Ironman 70.3 Taiwan winner Cody Beals. Great conversation with this guy. Earned his pro card in 2014 up in Canada and has been kicking ass ever since. But what really drew me to Cody was his blog. So he writes a blog on CodyBeals.com and basically just throwing himself out there, what he's doing, the good, the bad, the ugly, how to get sponsors, who his sponsors are, his training, what's worked, what doesn't work. But he has this interesting um, blog he's written for the past four years. It's the Pro Triathlete Budget. And it basically puts himself out there on how he's done from an earnings perspective as a pro triathlete going back to winning races, not winning races, getting sponsors, the whole gamut. So we chat a little bit about that. We chat about what it takes to become a pro, especially up in Canada, uh, racing against the likes of Lionel Sanders. And we talk about the future. Uh, he's barely, he's focused on the 70.3 races, but he's got his first Ironman coming up this year. And uh, the future is looking bright for Cody. So great conversation with Cody. Um, really enjoyed it, and I hope you guys too. And I want to just quickly thank Zane's Cycles for being a great supporter of my show. You know how to find them at Zane Cycles or Zanes.com. All right, guys and girls, without further ado, Cody Beals. Hello, Cody. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy training schedule to uh, sit down with me for a little while. Well, if I'm honest, the training schedule isn't too, too busy right now. It's more like the home renovation schedule. <laughs> That's right. You just, uh, let's just jump right into it. You kicked some serious ass uh, last week at Ironman Taiwan 70.3 for, for the win. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. I'm still kind of scratching my head over that one. It was not the performance I felt like I prepared for, but uh, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm pretty stoked about that. Yes, yeah, so you're up in um, in cold Ontario, is that correct? That's right. <laughs> it's funny, when I do these these pods on the West Coast, so it's nice to talk to someone that's suffering through the winter like I am. Yeah, yeah, I feel like we're brothers in suffering, uh, you know, northern U.S. and Canada but but you you did a lot of your and correct me if i'm wrong it seemed like you did a lot of your training for taiwan in indoors either on the train or in the pool or sometimes on the treadmill is that correct 
Yeah, somewhat out of necessity. So some previous years, I've gone down to Texas or Arizona and done some warm weather training there. But I've kind of had mixed results with training camps. It always feels awesome when I'm there and I seem to be building fitness. Then inevitably, I seem to come home and get sick and struggle to maintain momentum. So I've kind of decided that the training camp approach isn't, isn't the best for me. So I was just hunkered down here all winter, training away indoors for the most part. And what was the temperature like in Taiwan? Uh, it wasn't too, too bad. It was definitely a little on the warm side. I'm not very good with Fahrenheit, so forgive me. More like uh, 20, I think 25 to 28 Celsius was the high or towards the end of the race when I was finishing. So getting, getting warm, but not brutally hot. So did you find that it was tough to acclimate or were you excited to be out in some warmer weather? <laughs> I, I love hot races. I was really happy to be out in warm weather. Um, all my wins, in fact, have come on really hot races. So I'm something of a warm weather specialist, I guess. I didn't do any specific heat prep for this race, just looking at the, at the temperatures there and knowing they wouldn't be too extreme. But I think just by virtue of training so much indoors, you get a lot of kind of unintentional heat acclimation work just because you generate so much heat training inside. Yeah, I mean, especially on the trainer, it just becomes a sweat box. Oh, it's, it's brutal. Like I have this, it's probably the best 30 bucks I ever spent in my life was this used fan that I found. It's like this massive industrial grade fan probably like 30 inches in diameter. And that thing still isn't quite enough cooling on the trainer. And when you're on the trainer, are you following a training plan with a coach? Or are you on Zwift or some other sort of um, indoor training app? So I'm not on Zwift or any other indoor training app. Uh, I'm just doing my own thing with music most of the time. Every once in a while, I'll try and watch a TV show, but it has to be really mindless. Otherwise, I just totally zone out, I find. Um, but yeah, my, my workouts are very tightly scripted. So I write my day-to-day training, but it's overseen by David Tilbury Davis, who's a world-class coach with a really awesome track record. So he kind of coached me on a full-time basis for a few years as I was going pro and over my first few seasons. Then I took the reins and he kind of took the back seat, but he still a really, plays a really crucial role in just daily reality checks, helping me oversee kind of the overarching things, aspects of my season, like race planning and periodization. And what's the, um, what's the, rest of 2018 or 2018 looking like for you is it mostly 70.3 races the first half of the season is pretty typical for me i'm going to hit a bunch of 70.3s in fact the next few that i've lined up are all familiar ones that i've done in the past after that i'm going to switch gears around july and i've blocked off about seven weeks from racing where i'm going to put in a big training block building up to my first ironman at mont tremblant towards the end of august oh wow this will be your first ironman ever that's right yeah so i just turned 28 and Felt like the right year. I was getting a lot of questions about it, and I'm uh, getting casually excited about it now. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I, this is my 12th season doing triathlons. Never done a full, and everybody keeps asking me when I want to do one. So well, good, my, let me my, say, my, good, good for you. Like that's, <laughs> it's a rarity these days for someone to wait that long. But I think most of us are are better served paying our dues in short course and 70.3 first, even if Ironman is the ultimate goal. And I've I've even struggled with the idea that. Iron Man is like the be all and end all and should be everyone's ultimate objective. Like I love 70.3 racing. I love the intensity of the training. I love the dynamic tactical nature of the race. I think I could have this really full and fulfilling career just racing 70.3. So that's one of the reasons I haven't been super motivated to, to give Iron Man a shot uh, until this year, I guess. Yeah. I think the problem that I've seen from the pro perspective is unless you are going to, you know, do well in Kona it's almost I mean that's what you really have to do it seems like is, it, is it doing a full Ironman race as a pro that's right yeah it's it's not essential from a sponsor perspective 
but definitely to open certain doors and secure bigger contracts and just develop greater recognition, Ironman is pretty much a necessity. And um, so why don't we just t- tell me a little bit, a bit about your sponsors. I know um, we'll kind of jump on all over the place, but I did want to go to the backstory. But while we're talking about sponsors, who, who, you, who are you with this year? Sure. So Ventum is my bike sponsor. Um, Martin's Family Fruit Farm is a pretty unique partnership. I'm always on the lookout for non-endemic sponsors. That is to say sponsors that aren't strictly in the triathlon industry. So they've become one of my biggest sponsors over the years. And they're just a, a local apple orchard that distributes internationally now. So I'm pretty excited about that one. Um, Skechers is my shoe sponsor. Uh, the sponsor that flew me to Taiwan is Blick. And they're this Taiwanese Bluetooth audio company. They make a headset and a portable speaker. So they covered all my expenses there and really showed me a great time, gave me first-class treatment. Uh, another partnership I'm really excited about is Stack Performance. They're another local company, and their first product was the Stack Zero Trainer, and they've just released a smart trainer as a successor to that, and they also do a virtual wind tunnel, which is pretty unique. Um, EAS Myoplex is my sports nutrition sponsor. Alto Cycling is my wheel sponsor. Pioneer supplies me with power meters, and I just signed a deal with Sunto for watches. Nice. So I think what was cool about all those sponsors is some are triathlon specific, but some are not. So how did you line up the ones that aren't triathlon specific? You know, there's really been no formula. I would say the one common denominator is that very, very few of my sponsorships have come from just cold calls or cold emails or something like that. It's almost always brokered through some kind of mutual connection or recommendation. And it really underscores, I guess, like any business, especially in the triathlon business, just how important networking is. Yeah, right. And and I that's one of the biggest things that I found, especially with this podcast, is as I every time I find a new guest, it leads to it opens up more more doors to other guests, and especially in our community, it, it is very tiny. So um, you kind of kind of find different ways to stand out, and that was one of the things that led me to you. So um, you basically you tend to throw yourself out there on your blog, and it's it's codybeals.com, correct? That's right. Yep. And I just, I think what, well, what really what drew me to you was your, um, your, your, your uh, triathlon budget as a pro, that blog post. I, I went, I saw the fourth one that you dropped and had to go back and read all four of them. Um, what made you come up with that idea to just start throwing yourself out there, especially on the financial side? Well, it was very much in keeping with the theme of my blog, which is just ultimate openness and transparency. And that's how I try to set myself apart and be refreshing as a pro that I share so many of these really personal details of my life, like everything from my training and stuff to more personal things like medical records and of course finances. So when I wrote the first post four or five years ago, I really didn't think it would get much of a reaction. But in retrospect, I think people are really fascinated by finances. It's almost kind of voyeuristic to be peeking into someone else's pocketbook like that. And it got a tremendous response. And since then, every year, it's been this perennial most shared and responded to post that I write. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of neat to see, uh, especially, and, and it was actually kind of linear with your with your uh, success in triathlon, which has been good. Um, but you also went back and you were very open with the fact that your first year as a pro that you did have a side job in, in consulting. So how did you get into the pro side? And you were, you, you have a BS in physics, if I'm correct? That's right. Yeah. So I... Out of university, I was pretty fortunate to land a job that really is not an entry-level position. It was this awesome consulting job for Reed Harris Environmental, this tiny little kind of boutique consulting firm that does, um, 
ecosystem toxicology, basically. And it was a really cool job. Uh, and the greatest thing about it for me, from a standpoint of being interested in triathlon, was that it afforded this tremendous flexibility. So that I was able to um, kind of dial that work back gradually as my triathlon career, my triathlon earnings ramped up. So I wasn't in the position of having to quit a nine to five job all of a sudden to make a go at triathlon. So there was never a huge financial risk. It still felt like an adventure to me, um, embarking on my triathlon career, but I, I wasn't, you know, taking this big financial risk. So let's go even one step back. Um, if, if I forgot why I heard the story, um, but you kind of fell into triathlon by accident when you were recruited to run a cross-country race in high school? Oh, yeah. This is a story that I like to tell. Um, so, I mean, it's oversimplifying a little bit. Going back even further, my parents are both really avid, lifelong endurance sports athletes. And so they got me interested in, for, in endurance sports, cross-country skiing and cycling pretty much as soon as I could walk. Um, but they weren't super competitive about it. So my first serious introduction to competitive endurance sports came in high school. And I wasn't, I was a pretty academic kid, which is to say I was a nerd and I wasn't really that into like school teams. I had a devastating experience trying out for the volleyball team in grade eight, which was pretty scarring. So I swore off all that for a little while. Um, but I did do a little bit of jogging with my mom and just out and about. And I guess the, the cross country team coach had spotted me out jogging and I was this lanky kid. I looked like a runner. And the, uh, the morning of the district championships, one of the boys on the team who was a hockey player injured himself quite badly the night before playing hockey and was out. And so the way cross country works, you have to have four team members minimum in order to score, in order to make it to the next level. So long story short, they basically abducted me from first period math class where I was just minding my own business. They like kicked in the door, came in and uh, dragged me out to this cross country race. And literally an hour later from sitting in that class, I was on the start line of my first ever cross-country race wearing a pair of borrowed cross-country spikes. And really, like, the rest is history. The, the race went really well. It was miserable, but it still, uh, still went well enough that it was this really awesome dose of positive reinforcement for me that helped spur me to choose endurance sports kind of as a, a life path after that. Um, I still had no inkling that I would ever make a career of it. That didn't come till much later. Even going back as little as five or six years, I would have laughed at that idea. But uh, it's been quite an adventure. And so did you end up doing any endurance sports in, in college or university? I did. So it was mostly on my own. Um, I was swimming, biking, and running a lot then before I was even really racing triathlon too often. I did my first triathlon when I was 16. I didn't do any the following year and kind of just did one or two a year after that. But endurance sports were a really, really critical part of my life then um, just to help manage some anxiety and stress I was suffering through university for the most part. Um, again, in, in first year university I had a pretty awful experience trying to try out for the cross-country team it went really well for a couple weeks and then as all this other stress from school and living on my own for the first time and being pretty woefully unprepared caught up with me my running fell apart pretty predictably so I was kind of scared away from running varsity cross-country for a few years it wasn't until third year that I had the courage to go back and I'm really glad I did because after that in third and fourth year running cross-country became really the defining most positive experience of an otherwise pretty unpleasant university career. Was it just because it allowed you to do something besides focusing on studying? That's right. Yeah. So I naturally have a pretty obsessive personality, I would say. And previously that was channeled entirely into academics. So I would just spend like an ungodly amount of time on my desk working and I got some great marks, but didn't really have a whole lot else to show for it. My social life was in shambles didn't really have a lot going on in my life other than that. So 
running cross country was this amazing outlet. It literally physically removed me from campus and from my studies every weekend to go do a race, which was awesome because I really needed to, uh, I needed like a, a really stern hand, I think, to help achieve some more balance because I wasn't achieving it on my own. Yeah. And I, and I think you graduated top of your class. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of ironic because I, I can't tell you how much I worked and sweat and cried and suffered for that, that accomplishment. But ironically, it left me so burnt out of academia and school that I would never go back and do a graduate degree at this point that I can foresee. Um, and this is, I was a kid who in grade 12, everyone thought would be getting a PhD in physics. And I would tell you quite proudly, that was my plan, you know, to be studying subatomic physics right now. And like, what a joke that is. I couldn't be doing something more different. So, you know, it's ironic that I have these marks to get a full ride anywhere I want to go for graduate school, but I'm just so disgusted with that environment, um, at least for, from a compatibility standpoint, my personality that I'd never go back. And then, but then to your point, that kind of pointed you in direction, the direction of endurance sports and might've seems like opened up a whole nother career path for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I channeled some of that skill set from, from academics into sports. And if you'll bear with me, the reason I think they're similar is that other sports are perhaps more talent-based, talent based, at least from an outsider's perspective. But um, endurance sports, like, like academics, they really reward just consistent, deliberate practice and repetition. And basically, the amount of time you put in is what you get out to a large degree. Now, that's you know, belying the fact that I obviously have some genetic gifts and stuff. But um, I did find a pretty strong correlation with the amount of time and energy and focus and attention to detail I put into sport, just like school, I'm rewarded with pretty predictable results. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why in, in the United States, some of the top running programs are Ivy League schools um, and the quote unquote smarter kids do the endurance sports. Yeah, maybe that's the case. I know the cross country team had a lot of uh, academic heavy hitters. I think it was every year, one of the highest scoring teams in terms of marks. Yeah. And so then, okay, so, so you're, you're done with school, literally and figuratively, and um, you showed some promise in endurance sports. And I think, so Canada kind of has this uh, uh, farm system, for lack of a better word, or lower level pro upper level elite triathlon scene. Is that correct? Yeah, and particularly in Ontario, we've got the Multisport Canada Triathlon Series and some other local race series, as well as all these local clubs. And so it's not something you'd hear about probably even in the U.S., let alone further internationally. But there's this amazing kind of farm team for professional athletes right here in Ontario. So I was racing guys like Lionel Sanders and Taylor Reed and Jack Laundrie, who've all gone on to great success in 70.3 racing before they were big names at all. We were all just a bunch of you know, teenagers and early 20-somethings. So you're racing against these guys and um, probably humbled a little bit out in the course, I'm assuming, if you're racing against Lionel. Oh, man, I, I think I have more second places to Lionel than anyone else in the world. <laughs> but it's been, it's been pretty validating, I guess, in a way to see him go on and have such international success because I thought I was doing pretty well back then and I still wasn't beating him in, you know, sprint triathlons and stuff. So I'm happy for him. <laughs> yeah, and I think, but it made you a stronger stronger uh, triathlete so that at what point did you either did you get what year did you get your pro card i'm sorry so i took my pro card in 2014 and was that your plan to get it that at that race or it just kind of happened or well i'd actually qualified a number of times over i think in, in previous years at least two years previously um but i still didn't really have any desire to go pro i didn't think it was a legitimate career path and it took some people around me to kind of basically twist my arm to get the pro card 
And was it something you didn't want to do financially or just the, I, I guess, yeah. So why, why would did you think you didn't want to do it? It's hard to say thinking back because now I can't imagine any lifestyle, but doing what I'm doing. Um, I've always been pretty resistant to change, pretty conservative when it comes to new things. So just any disruption of the status quo is, I guess, new and scary for me. And what was the biggest change for you once you got your pro card in 2014? You know, there, there really wasn't any appreciable change. I, I think the, the last thing that really spurred me to take my pro card was that I finished fifth as an uh, amateur athlete at Muskoka 70.3, one of the years, one of the last years at still at a pro race. And that would have earned me a paycheck. But of course, I wasn't able to collect the paycheck because I was an amateur. So one significant change is I could get paid because that really sucked to not be able to get that money. So <laughs> if there was any, any doubt I needed to go pro, maybe that helped resolve it. But other than that, nothing appreciably changes when you take your pro card. You're still the same athlete. You still have the same schedule. You still have the same life for the most part. So it's kind of this um, misconception, I think, that someone takes their pro card and suddenly they're kicking everything into a new gear. Yeah, it's funny. I, I am one of the, my past guests is a, a woman, Maddie Pesh, who just became pro because she qualified. A, she won age group nationals here in the United States. And I asked her the same question you know, what changed? She's like, nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm still, uh, I mean, she's still training just as hard. You, you obviously have to train hard to get, to get your, into your pro card. Um, except yeah, elite, that- elite athletes in triathlon kind of exist more on a continuum from your complete amateur. And you, you even see some quote unquote elite age groupers who are collecting sponsorship, just like pros and leveraging race results to try and um, secure sponsorship uh, so really nothing happens when you actually take that step and claim your pro card. There's uh, by the other, um, at the other end, I guess there's pros that hold their pro card, but are still working full-time jobs as well to make ends meet. Yeah. There's no fanfare. There's no big emails. Congratulations coming out. It just kind of happens. <laughs> no, it's not like, you know, a switch is flipped and you're recruited to the NFL and you make it big time all of a sudden or something. Yeah. There's no signing bonus to become a triathlon pro. <laughs> <laughs> no. And there's also no instruction manual. I'm still, I'm still figuring out what the hell I'm doing most days. Oh, that might be the, that might be your end Cody. You could start blogging about, you know, the transition to become a pro. Yeah. Well, that's to some extent what I've been trying to do is just document all these aspects of my experience and including my mistakes. I think some people, some other athletes, social media and blogs, it's too positive. And I, I assure you, it's not the case. The sport is way, way too hard for everyone to be having that smooth ride. We just, we just don't hear about when, when things go wrong. So I try and be pretty open about those things as well as the successes. Yeah. And we were talking offline and that's what led me to you. Um, I, I said, you know, you really remind me of Jesse Thomas past guest on my show who you guys just throw yourself out there and it's great to see the positive. Like it's great to see, you know, pro XYZ throwing down 400 Watts. I mean, that's great and impressive, but it's also nice to see not the failures, but to, to see the mistakes you guys make and how we can learn from that. You know, I really appreciate that comparison because Jesse is a pro I've definitely looked up to. He's a few years further along in his career, but he's a great standard for openness. Um, just one example, I love the writing he did for Triathlete Magazine about his past with, I guess, disordered eating habits and stuff. And that's a topic that's pretty near and dear to my heart and definitely in my past experiences. So to have someone speaking publicly about a difficult topic like that is pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think especially in the world of professionals in general, not only triathlon, but any sport is uh, amateurs put you guys on a higher pedestal. But at the end of the day, you're still 
you're still the same as us, just a little faster. <laughs> oh, yes, I assure you, we're, we're completely human. But it's one of the cool things about triathlon that we're all out there on the race course sharing a very similar experience. And I think triathlon pros are a lot more accessible than pro athletes in other sports. Oh, I mean, hands down, that's why uh, I'm able to do this podcast with profession, you know, professionals like you that say yes. Um, I would doubt that some professional football player would want to come on just the everyday podcast. So it's really cool not only to talk to you guys, but also to be out there on the course with you. And, uh, you know, you made that point before is that age groupers have it just as hard as you guys. Um, we have a lot more responsibilities and, uh, we're all in the same boat together. You just, uh, again, a lot faster than us. Yeah. And my, but really this, the speed thing doesn't really change, I guess the essence of the experience, which is just being out there and suffering together. Yes. If we're all suffering the same amount. Yeah. I've developed a greater, I guess, respect for age groupers this year more than any other, because this is the first year where I feel like I have some legitimate adult responsibilities in my life. And man, it's really hard to get training done when you've got anything else going on in your day. I was used to a pretty, pretty pampered existence, I guess, being able to nap after my first workout and, you know, having a bit of other work to do, but for the most part, centering my life around training this year has been definitely an adjustment. Yeah, I was cracking up as I was kind of going through your blog. Um, it's you just bought a house. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. In Guelph, Ontario. Just moved in last month. Yeah. So it, and I think the and again, I just from what I read, so it's not anything that uh, any other knowledge that I have but reading what you put out there, but it took you a year to kind of figure it out and get the house. And so you were dealing with all other issues that us age groupers have to go through. Yeah, that that closing that home deal was a marathon. Like it felt like an endurance event. Um, but going into all the gritty details, there was a really messed up legal situation. And then just one string of unfortunate circumstances after another. And we barely avoided the lawsuit with the seller. It was just a real nightmare. And then I had um, all kinds of other issues with contractors and getting renovations done and ultimately just took things into my own hands. And so my schedule lately has been trained for three or four hours a day and renovated for four or five. <laughs> so that's, that's your strength training is doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah. You know, and I assumed it was going to be a liability for this season and I w was not expecting much come Taiwan, but I'm not going to pretend that was great functional strength training or great for fitness, <laughs> but it was good for just grit. And I was, I was talking with Andy Potts about, this kind of joking uh, parameter we refer to as old man strength. And it's something you see in older athletes. It's partly just being able to draw on the legacy of years and years of, of endurance training and being generally fit, regardless of what you've done in the last, you know, eight to 12 weeks. But more than anything else, old man strength is just a mindset. Old man strength is, you know, kicking your ass, working on your house all day and sleeping poorly and still showing up and crushing swim practice the next morning or having all kinds of stressful things on your mind, taking a call from your lawyer in the change room and then still crushing your workout. Like it's things like that, which would have utterly destroyed me, um, you know, even just a few years ago. Yeah, it's so funny you said that because when I was, um, had Jesse on my show, so, you know, he, he went in a couple of years ago and focused 110% on Kona. And um, although did well, I don't think he had the result that he wanted. And then he goes in this year, 2018, with a different mindset, his whole mindset for 2018 season is to do more traveling to funky races all over the world with his family. And he goes out to challenge Wanaka and comes in third um, against a stacked field. And, um, you know, and it goes back to what you're saying, right? You have all these other responsibilities, yet you go to Taiwan and you come in first. 
So it maybe yeah, my, I don't know if that's a special sauce or maybe it just kind of focuses us a little bit more. Well, my, uh, I agree with that to some extent. My coach had an interesting observation on that too. David was thinking that just removing the pressure of expectation can, can trigger some pretty amazing things. I mean, don't get me wrong. I always put a lot of pressure on myself, even when I'm showing up at a race with what I consider to be subpar training. I'm still, no one's putting more pressure on me than, than myself, of course. But I think it's an, it's an enviable position to just not be under tons of expectation and pressure externally. Yeah, I think, you know, Michael Jordan had one of his best games as a professional when he had the flu. I've um, heard about that legendary game. Yeah, I don't follow basketball much, but that, that's the stuff of legends. Right. So there you go. We could put you up there on the same pedestal as Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Cody Beal's homeowner and Iron Man <laughs> 7.3 Taiwan champion. Yeah. So um, as we're, as we're kind of getting to the end of this conversation, I wanted to kind of go one more question. So how did you actually two more questions? At what point did you kind of figure out, okay, I could quit my other job and focus 110% on being a pro and, and make a living from that? Well, I actually still haven't quit the other job. I'm oh, okay. still kind of <laughs> technically still technically on the payroll, but between you and me, I think I billed like 10 hours the entirety <laughs> of all last year. Um, but yeah, it was years ago that I kind of took a step, a big step back from that on a weekly basis. And now I kind of just can be choosy. If there's a really cool bit of piecework that comes my way and I think it would be a nice change of pace, I'll take it. Um, but lately I've just had not nearly enough time with the house and with training and everything to even consider that. Uh, but I still keep my foot in the door there just for a bit of uh, income security, I guess, if triathlon happens to go belly up. Yeah, and that was kind of what I, my, my lead into asking that question was, you know, so a lot of pros, I, I take that back, I'll take, strike that last point. I don't even know what pros think about it when they, when they retire. So is there, and not that, you know, you have a long way off, but is this something you, are you going to become a coach? Are you going to start a food company or do you just not even think about it right now? The retirement is definitely far away. I mean, triathlon is a unique sport in that if you play your cards right, you can have a, a world-class career until your early 40s. There's even some guys in their mid-40s, a small number, mind you, who are still at the world-class level. So it's definitely in the distant, in the distant future. Um, I do like coaching. I don't know if that would ultimately light my fire in the long run. What I really admire, I mentioned Stack Performance before. Um, they're kind of the blueprint for like a small entrepreneurial startup doing really cool stuff. I'd love to be doing something like that. If I wasn't racing triathlon right now, I think that's what I'd be pursuing. So I've already had a couple job offers from my sponsors, actually. So I'm not too worried about what would come next. Yeah. And I asked that question only because just your personality seems like you're somebody that would do something, um, you know, start a business, start a company, be an entrepreneur, do something crazy um, with your background in physics and just your personality as it, as it came to, to, um, to university. Absolutely. And it's just what I'm accustomed to as well. I only have worked a conventional nine to five job for one summer. It was an internship at a hydro utility company in university. And it's a cool job, but that was enough for me to ascertain that the nine to five grind isn't for me. I, I think I've been pretty spoiled by even with the consulting work and now with triathlon, being my own boss and being able to set my own hours and have basically complete autonomy and freedom. And it's pretty intoxicating. I can't really imagine doing anything else. I would, I would, you know, if I had to get by on a pretty lean lifestyle and budget just to keep this up. Yeah. And I mean, and again, you documented that very vividly in your blog about your lifestyle. It is pretty lean. Um, some people might say it's pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh, fair, fair. <laughs> but it works for you. And um, but it's just it's just pretty cool how how you've documented all that. So uh, and I, oh, the other thing I wanted to comment you on as we're kind of wrapping this up is you're one of the few people I know that actually updates their blog on a regular basis. Like you just put your 2018 schedule in there and your last race. So generally you find these blogs and it's you know the last race was 2016. So kudos to you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I've, I've tried to call out the professional field on that in general, just posting at the very least a race schedule. I know it can be onerous to be writing articles and updating the blog regularly, but at the very least, I wish pros would publish their race schedule at the start of the season. Obviously, the extenuating circumstances happen and things change, but, you know, guys, put your best guess at your schedule up there. I think it really adds to the professionalism of our sport. It's hard for people to take us seriously when you have pros just flying by the seat of their pants and hopping in races week to week. Yeah, I, uh, amen to that. And also, it's more enjoyable for us on my side and our side to kind of follow you guys. Yeah, it makes it easier for people to follow and for sponsors to to leverage you as a sponsored athlete to the full extent. Yeah, especially sponsors. And I think that was the other cool thing that, you know, one of your, you did a, blog, a couple blog posts on sponsors. And I'm assuming when you find these sponsors, you know, they know what they're getting with you, right? They're They're getting a guy that's good at the 70.3 distance. They're getting a guy that's putting himself out there and, uh, they, they, so they know what they're getting, right? They're not trying to make you into something that you're not. I, I'd hope so, but I, I mentioned about eight or nine different contracts at the start of the conversation, and every single one of those is different. So it's highly individualized. I remember starting out, I tried to like put together a sponsorship grid with different tiers and stuff. And that entire approach was to a large extent misguided because in triathlon, at least, what the services I'm offering each of those companies really is, are, are unique and specialized and different. So sponsorship always starts out with a conversation about what, what do they want? Not me just prescriptively telling them what I can give them. Cool. All right, Cody. So as we're wrapping this up, I've, I'm ending all my podcasts with the same question. So here we go. You ready? Yep. Knowing everything that you know now in your years of experience racing triathlon, if you could go back to, Actually, if you go back to that day of you sitting in math class when they when they pulled you out for your first cross country race and you could give yourself then one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, I know it right away. Um, it's that triathlon is an individual sport, but it absolutely takes a team around you to achieve the highest level of success. So I really prided myself in being a lone wolf for all these years. And I thought I could be this self tech taught expert in every aspect of triathlon. And that was so sorely misguided, and it led me down such a counterproductive path for many years. Um, and it was only once I started recognizing that I needed to draw on the support of all kinds of experts like coaches and, and doctors and other kinds of consultants, and also just the social support of teammates around me pushing me in training. That's so completely critical, even though at the end of the day, it's just you out there by yourself on the race course. Awesome. That's a, that's a great response. And I, I truly appreciate that. You know, the cool thing about asking this question is every single person gives a completely different response and uh, it's really cool. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So everybody could find you. Um, so you're all over social um, Instagram, you're Cody.Beals. You're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, and then your blog is CodyBeals.com. Yeah, thanks for the shout out. Yeah, my pleasure. So I'll put all that in the show notes. Hopefully people can follow you. I really think you, your your career path after triathlon could be consultant to, to new 
and upcoming athletes. Um, I think you freaking nailed it. So that's my, that's my advice to you. If I could, if I could spin that into a career, I would love it. <laughs> awesome. Clay, listen, um, congrats again on Taiwan. I know you have some 70.3 races coming up shortly. So good luck with all those. And I look forward to following your journey into the future. Thanks a lot. Good luck to you too. Thanks. Talk soon. All right. What'd you guys think? Cody Beals. Cool dude. Loved the conversation with him. Truly appreciate him coming on my show and putting himself out there. And if you want to hear more good stuff from Cody, go follow his blog, CodyBeals.com, where he calls himself a nerd in jocks clothing. Also, go follow him on Instagram, Cody.Beals. He's also on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm sure he'll follow you back because he's really one of those pros that just puts himself out there with all his followers and interacts with all of us. So, you know how to find me. I'm everywhere as jmac underscore tries. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for sharing. Until next Tuesday, be good.